I had a gal write me one time, and she said, um, I've been angry at you for a long time, and, and please forgive me, but I was sure that you were sending somebody to follow me around during the week to find out about what I was going through, and then you'd speak on it Sunday. <laughs> I assured her that I didn't have the time or the desire to do that. But she was certain that I was just talking directly to her and about her, and that's just the Spirit of God, and as it applies, it applies. I was in um, El Paso, Texas yesterday, uh, not just because I like to go there. I was at a men's conference, and as I was going to the airport to get my seat assignment, somebody left an Us magazine, and they left it there, and I asked if it was anybody's. It wasn't, so I took it. And uh, there is an article in here about television. It's called Welcome to the Jungle. And it's about talk shows. And all, you, know, you know, there are so many talk shows today. And uh, they seem like they look for the weirdest kind of people to put on them, with the weirdest kind of backgrounds, with the filthiest kind of thought patterns. And it makes press. And uh, it begins by saying, each day talk show producers compete in a race against time to convince their best, brightest, and bizarrest people to bear their dirty secrets in front of millions. Talk show uh, offers many of the same thrills as soap operas, sex, betrayal, villains, and victims. Viewers want to see real-life people instead of actresses talk about affairs. It fulfills the same needs. And then uh, it's a quote from Mary Duffy, the supervising producer of the Montel Williams Show. She reflects on her 10 years in the industry from her office high above Times Square. She said, 10 years ago it was shocking to see a transsexual on television. Now it's like, okay, big deal. Audiences are more demanding. Can some of you still remember shows like I Love Lucy? Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet. Uh, those are so pure, they're not even accepted anymore. There's not enough edge to them. The moral landscape of this culture has dramatically changed and is radically changing daily. I think if they were to remake those shows, they'd have to say Ozzie and Harriet's Divorce Settlement or Beaver's Home Alone or uh, I Love Lucy and Sally. It'd have to be some bizarre thing like that. In verse 1, he begins dealing with the issue of moral purity by saying, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given his Holy Spirit. 
A lot of people read that and say, well, that's fine text for the Bible, but we live in techno-urban America. Things have changed. Don't try to apply that today. Things are far different from the way they used to be. If you look at our society nowadays, I would say an incredible desensitization has taken place among most of us. We have just seen so much that it doesn't bother us anymore. We recommend movies to each other, not even aware of some of the content that goes on, because we just, we're desensitized to it. We tune it out, we think. I have told you before that the average American, that's probably you, you're average to some degree, the average American, if you're a television viewer, views in one year 9,230 scenes or implied sexual encounters on television. That's in one year. 81% of those are outside of marriage. They're either premarital or extramarital sexual encounters. So the average person, let's say he's an 8 to 18 year old, in 10 years he'd have watched 93,000 sexual encounters or implied. 72,900 would be outside of marriage. Now if you have the unfortunate experience of watching soap operas, like that one, uh, As My Stomach Churns, 94% of the sexual encounters are outside of marriage. Hollywood has a clear agenda. Here's their message, if you haven't picked up on it yet. The message in Hollywood is, it's okay, everybody's doing it, don't be so backwards. Don't be a Puritan. Don't be a prude. Wake up. It's a new day and age. So Paul devotes quite a bit of space to sexual purity for this reason. In the Bible, yes, in the Bible, the background of where the people came from was just as immoral as it is today. Don't think, well, the Bible's outdated. It has nothing to do with 1990. It has everything to do with it. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, there weren't morals. There used to be, but it had so degenerated that by the time of Paul the Apostle, immorality and divorce were rampant. But it didn't start out that way. The nations, the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire, began sort of like the United States in many respects and then degenerated, pushed the envelope in immorality, and so people didn't blink an eye at things. In the first 520 years, of the Roman Empire. There is not one recorded divorce in 520 years. And things rapidly changed after that. In fact, toward the latter end of the Roman Empire, before it totally collapsed, Seneca said, women were married to be divorced and divorced just to be married. He said that fashionable Roman women would number their years by the number of their husbands that they've had. And the Greek Demosthenes wrote, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for day-to-day -day needs, and we keep wives for the beginning of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. And as long as a man supported his wife and kids, he could do anything he wanted to. That was okay. In fact, there was a Roman joke, believe it or not, that went around that said marriage brings two happy days to a man, the day he marries her and the day he buries her. That was something they said as a joke 
in those days. Now, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians from, interestingly enough, Corinth. He's surrounded by immorality. Right down the street from where Paul was writing was that huge temple to Aphrodite. She was worshipped by sex. Every evening, a thousand prostitutes called priestesses went out to the town to seduce young men to worship sexually. He was writing to the town of Thessalonica, and they had deities called the Kabiri, which were worshipped with the illicit sexual encounters. So with that as a background, just so you know what they were saved from, and that it's not too much, uh, too undifferent from today. In this section, Paul gives three ways, three requirements to develop moral purity. Three requirements to develop moral purity. Number one, keep your life pleasing. Secondly, keep your lust prohibited. And then third, keep your love prominent. And we'll discuss those. Look at verse 1 for just a moment. Finally then, or it could be rendered, also then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. i got to tell you, I'm still very impressed with this church at Thessalonica. Here's why I'm, I'm impressed. Paul had only been there three weeks. And in three weeks, he gave them sufficient instruction to change their lives. They were loving each other. They were obeying the Lord. Their faith was spread throughout all the world. And so he says, I've given you these instructions. You're doing them. Abound in them. And it impresses me that a young church could be so devoted to these principles. And I'll tell you what I think the secret is. I think the secret is not as much what they heard as how they heard what they heard. There are people who listen actively and there are people who listen passively. There are people who listen and they do it. And there are people who just, it goes through one ear and out the other. Uh, some people can't stand uh, sermons longer than 15 minutes. 20 minutes. We call them sermonettes for Christianettes <laughs> who can't wait to go have a cigarette. And these people were devoted. In three weeks they had picked up on sufficient instruction that caused them to have such fueled growth in the Christian walk. Jesus said, take heed how you hear. I'm going to be in India in about a week and a half. And again, what, what impresses me about India is that the church services are four hours long. Now don't, now don't worry. I don't plan to change, but uh, they give two, three different sermons sometimes in one service, and you just can't get rid of these people. They walk for miles, and they just hang upon every word. I'm reminded of the words of Solomon, to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. And they're just so hungry for the word. Well, I want you to notice that Paul begins by telling us that our life should be pleasing to God. He reminded them of that, and he reminds them again. Here's my point. Purity, moral purity, begins nowhere else but with God himself. Your commitment to God is the first step in keeping your life pure, morally, sexually. It doesn't begin by having a covenant with your boyfriend or girlfriend to abstain before marriage, though it should include that. It doesn't begin by an exercise in self-discipline. I am going to promise that I do this. 
it should include that. But it begins by saying, my covenant is with God. He bought me with his blood. I belong to him. That's where it begins. And that's why he says, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Have a goal, a master motive. And that's to please him. Carpenters hit hundreds of nails in one day. They get so good at it because they do it all the time. And the secret is that when you hammer the nail, you keep your eye on the nail, not on the thumb that's holding it. There's a reason for that. Whatever you watch, that's what you'll hit. Our spiritual nail is the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep focused on him to please him, and that's where it all begins. I should be quick to say that every one of us pleases somebody. Did you know that? I believe that every human being is out to please somebody. Some please themselves. They don't care about anybody else. It's their own pleasures that they're after. You'll never be morally pure if you try to please yourself. and You can see why. If you just try to please yourself, you'll follow your lusts and desires from one thing to the next. It'll never satisfy you. It will frustrate you. Others try to please other people. They are insecure and they will do anything to get people to love them or to like them or to say nice things about them. Please love me. Be my friend. I'll flatter you. I'll say anything but just like me. Well, you won't stay morally pure by trying to please other people all the time. I'm not saying that you should try to displease people, but Paul said we try to please God rather than men. Doesn't mean you should be obnoxious. But you'll never be morally pure if you try to please people because here's an example, a scenario. You might be a young single gal dating a hormone-driven guy and you're just trying to please him and he'll tell you how you can do that and it'll be to compromise your purity. The first step is to please God. We taught you how you ought to walk and to please him, for you know what commandments we have given you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you what Paul said in Philippians 2, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now I think that pleasing God means more than just obeying him. You can obey God outwardly and still, your heart isn't pleasing to him. Case in point, Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh. God wanted him to go to Nineveh. Was he happy about going to Nineveh? No. Why did he go? Because he didn't want to be fish food. He was tired of being vomited out of whales. When he went to Nineveh, he preached to Nineveh. Destruction. And God was going to be merciful to Nineveh. Jonah wasn't excited. He sat on the outside of the town and pouted because God was going to extend his mercy to these people. He went there, but God didn't have his heart. Paul said in Ephesians 6 that we should serve not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So the first step to moral purity is a life that is pleasing to him. Secondly, keep your lust prohibited. Uh, notice he follows right on the heels of that in verse 3 by saying, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I get a lot of questions about the will of God. And I often come to this verse because there's a few verses that spell out part of what the will of God is for your life. What's God's will? Well, here it is. Your sanctification. 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Here's the flow of this section. Moral purity begins by saying yes to God. It doesn't end there. When you say yes to God, you say no to things that would displease God. You abstain from immorality. You say yes to God, you say no to your sexual passions when they're trying to drive you in an illicit or an unprescribed manner. So Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2 and he said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. But I want you to know that saying no is more than just a say no program. He's not saying, when you're tempted sexually, just stand there and say, no. There is a goal to you saying no. You should say no so that you can be used by God. Your body is a vessel. It's a tool. And the devil can use it or God can use it. I want you to notice a word in verse 3 and 4, the word sanctification. And then look down at verse 7. God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Holiness. Sanctification and holiness, it's the same word. It's hagiasmas, a word used ten times in this kind of a setting in the New Testament. It simply means that you set something apart to be used. I'm setting this apart to be used for a specific purpose. Your body, your life has a goal, that it can become an instrument to be used by God. God wants to use you. And the reason that we say no is so that we can say yes to being used by God. That's the whole idea here of sanctification. That's the goal. Leonard Ravenhill had it right when he said, the greatest miracle God could do is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy, put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Now I'd like to shoot straight with you guys, gals. There's four things that I see in this saying no or in keeping your lust prohibited. Look at verse 3. We learn, first of all, it is God's will for you to be sexually pure. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that, and here's, he qualifies that, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. If you have an old King James version, it says fornication. The New King James says sexual immorality. I don't know what the NIV says or the New American Standard, but sexual immorality is the idea. The word is pornea. It is an umbrella word that means every single kind of illicit, unbiblical sexual intercourse. Be it adultery, that's one kind. Fornication, that's one kind. Homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, whatever. Pornea, any illicit kind of sexual intercourse. Now here's a point about this verse. You never have to pray about this area of your life. You never have to say, oh, I'm going to pray if, if God would really have us move in together before we're married and just try out the relationship. I'm going to pray that, that it, maybe it's God's will. You never have to pray about that. I've had a person actually come to me and say, I'm thinking of moving in with my boyfriend and trying it out. Would you pray and see if it's God's will? No, I won't. Because I know it's not God's will. Why pray about something that God says no to? This is the will of God that you be set apart for him and that you would abstain from sexual immorality. 
God created sex. I want to be quick to say that. Because there are people who say, oh, here it goes. Narrow, narrow, narrow. God is cramping my style. God invented sex. He came up with the idea. He came up with the idea for the propagation of the race and for the enjoyment of the partners. If you don't believe that, your marriage isn't going to be very good. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 5 that there is an intimacy shared, a care for the body of the other partner, and that care blossoms and nourishes that other person. And in fact, that intimacy within marriage is even a reflection in a spiritual sense of the kind of intimate relations that God wants with his people, meaning that God doesn't want to be dealt with religiously, but he wants a relationship with a person based on love and tenderness. God invented it. He created it. But... Though it is God-given, it must be God-governed. It must be God-governed. And that is a very important point, especially to those people who say, hey, what's the hang-up? It's natural. God created us that way. Therefore, we do that. It's true. But God has to govern what he has also given, and you must be submitted to him since it's his gift. God wants you holy in a sexual context. Are you? We say, well, how can I be? Verse 3, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You don't hear too much about abstinence. You hear a lot about safe sex, which is an oxymoron outside of marriage. There's nothing safe about it. It is absolutely destructive, either physically or emotionally, outside of its proper context. Okay, you young Thessalonian believers, I know that you've come from that background. It's dark, it's pagan. They're doing it all the time. But God wants you set apart. He wants to use you. So abstain from sexual immorality. Again, you might think, well, I don't buy that. God's trying to cramp my style. I knew that if I came to Jesus Christ that he would restrict me and cramp my style. He's not trying to cramp your style. God has a huge heart of love for you. He's trying to save you from heartache and sexually transmitted disease. Trying to cramp your style? He's trying to save your life. It's like fire. Fire is wonderful in a fireplace. Soak the fire, put the paper under it. It's beautiful. It warms the house. Okay, take that log and put it on your carpet. It will burn your house down. It looks great, and it's in its proper context in the fireplace. Outside, it's destructive, nothing but. And so is this area of our lives. And so God said in the Old Testament as part of the law, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, what did Moses do when God said that? Oh, God, come on, Lord. I'm all the commandments were good. Thou shalt not murder, but come on. God was trying to put a wall around marriage to protect the people inside, to make that like a beautiful garden of safety where people could blossom in that kind of context. Now look at verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Let me rephrase that. You can do it. You can say no. You can stay morally pure. You can do it. The idea of possessing his vessel, there's a couple different ideas of the translation, but let me tell you what it means. It means that you exercise self-control with your body. You can do it. Say, oh, skip. How can you say I can do it? You don't know me. You don't know my drive. My libido is so strong, it's hard to control it. 
Well, I know this. If you're a Christian and you are filled with the Spirit of God, which you are, He controls your life, or at least He is living inside of you, part of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, meekness, self-control. It's something that God enables. I know that these areas can have a stronghold. I know that some of us, many of us, struggle in these areas. For some of us, it's an ongoing battle that will last a lifetime. But you can do it by the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. Example, Joseph. Here's a guy in the Old Testament who was the slave of a benevolent, at one point, slave driver named Potiphar. Potiphar had a wife, a lonely wife. Potiphar was his type A personality, always on the move, always gone from the home. His wife was a lonely housewife. He looked at Joseph, and Joseph was handsome in appearance, it says. Just an awesome-looking guy. And archaeologists tell us that ancient Egyptian women were liberated. And boy, was she liberated. She grabbed a hold of Joseph, pulled him close to her, and said, Joseph, come to bed with me. Joseph said, how can I sin against my master and against the Lord? He kept saying no, until finally she grabbed him, said, lie with me. And he fled out of the house, leaving his garment in her hand. He streaked, literally, out of that Egyptian home. He would rather be embarrassed and keep that code of ethics. And I believe that Joseph was able to say no, 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 so many times because he said it in his heart. He said in his heart, the battle is won or lost in the mind and the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. That's where purity continues. There are people on television, Dr. Ruth being one of them. You know, you've heard of, right, Dr. Ruth? And she always says, now I want to tell you. There's nothing wrong with fantasies. And she says, let the person fantasize because it's secret. You're not hurting anybody. It's contained within your own mind. Well, it might be temporarily, but you keep meditating on those fantasies, fueling them by pornography, and eventually they can come out. And oftentimes they do come out into real life. They don't stay contained. You fuel them long enough. And there's probably not a man in this room who doesn't remember the first time he saw a pornographic picture and how shocked at whatever age he was to see that portrayed. It, it was emblazoned on his mind. And if those things are kept fueled and you keep looking at those things and meditating on them, those fantasies are not harmless. The battle is won or lost in that area. Job knew it. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Think of this, guys. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Eyes? I'm going to make a deal with you. When you see that picture, if you open that magazine, you see it, you're going to look away. You're not going to look it over because you're enjoying God's creation. You're going to turn away from it. When you see something on television, you'll change the channel. Some of us cannot afford to continue. It's just too strong what it produces in our minds. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? There's an old saying that says, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop him from putting a nest in your hair. Look at verse 5. 
Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's his point. Christians are to be different. Christians are to be different. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the meaning of sanctification. We're different. We're not like them. Look at verse 8. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, if somebody says, well, this is just too rigid for me, that's the testimony of an unbeliever, not a Christian. That is not the testimony of a Christian because ungodly people are those who give this testimony. They don't know God. They're not submitted to God. They're not submitted to his ways. They see it as too restrictive. Then it says, God gave us his Holy Spirit, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Notice he is called the Holy Spirit, not the loving spirit. He's loving, but the major attribute that he possesses is holiness. And if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, he's going to make you holy. That's part of sanctification. I think it's time to really take this issue seriously because one out of every nine marriage breakups... One out of nine marriages that have been broken up attribute the breakup to sexual immorality. A staggering poll came across my desk that says almost one-third of all married Americans have had or are now having an affair. Now, this is not the number from Hollywood or from New York. It's the national average for adultery. Today, the majority of Americans, 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs that they are now having. Once again, we hear the rationalization. The poll said, everybody is doing it. It's not a problem outside the church, by the way. It has crept inside the church. Time magazine said, among those who label themselves very religious, 31% have had an affair. Christianity Today ran a poll. They polled 1,000 people at random. Here's their results. 23% admitted committing adultery, 45% in Christianity Today's poll said they acted inappropriately in a sexual way. Wow. Now, it gets heavier. Look at verse 6. God's judgment comes because of this. No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned and we testified. We warned you about God's judgment in this, that he's the avenger, and we testified of that. Here's one way that God judges. God gives people over to their desires, it says in the book of Romans. And there is a law of reciprocity. Whatever you sow, you reap. And often the, the judgment is simply you carry out the consequence for what you have done. Uh, you might have a few flings and be loose morally. And then you come and you repent of that. And you know what? God will completely forgive that. He'll wash you white as snow. But you still may live with the consequence of having a disease for a lifetime or even be killed by it. If you're single, consider that. If you sin in this area, you sin against your own body, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. You're a vessel of God, supposedly. So you sin against your own body. You also sin against your future spouse because you didn't keep yourself for that person. 
And you might think that's really irrelevant and, 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 and small matter. It's not. I have counseled young couples who have a problem now trusting each other once they're married. I say, how come you don't trust each other? She'll say, well, he was so loose before we were married. How do I know he won't be loose now? He hasn't proven his trust to me, and there's a big trust problem. If you're married and you're loose, you sin against yourself, you sin against the Lord, you sin against uh, that person, that person's spouse, your children who put a trust in you to have character. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He didn't do it alone. He sinned against her, his own wife, their children, and the nation, who looked to a leader to have character morally, and he sinned against the nation. And then I also think that God will judge, in fact, I know it in the end times when he comes again, it says in the book of Revelation that the immorality, the adultery of the world was judged by God. I found an interesting article that was given to me a couple weeks back by Chuck Smith. And it came right from the Orange County Register. I thought I'd share it with you. January 24, 1994, Quake commu uh, Communities, also the epicenter of porn. The triangle formed by Chatsworth, Northridge, and Canoga Park encircling the epicenter last week's powerful quake contains nearly 70 companies that crank out more than 95% of the roughly 1,400 pornographic videos made every year in the United States. Probably the most devastated has been the giant industry, VCA Pictures, a Chatsworth company that normally releases more than 100 videos a year. According to several sources, VCA's DeSoto Avenue office building was totaled. Other companies, other companies report a range of lesser damage. This is the epicenter, 95% of the nation's porn. That doesn't surprise me. If you were involved in immorality at any level, it's not time to gloss it over. It's time to deal with it. It's time to say, I've got to make some real changes in the direction of my eyes, my mind, accountability. It says, whoever tries to cover over his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. That's the answer right there. Confess it, Lord, I've sinned in this area, and now I forsake it by your grace. Now look at verse 6 once again, and we come to our third requirement to moral purity, and that is keep your love prominent. I want you to notice that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. In what matter? In the matter of sexual morality or immorality. You never sin alone. You involve other people. Don't defraud your brother in this matter. And then look at verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, he's saying, boy, he's making a weird transition from morality to love. No, they fit perfectly together. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You see, immorality is never a private thing. It's not just a sin against God or your own body. As we've already said, it involves so many other people. Jesus said, the law is fulfilled in one word. What is it? Love. The law of Moses is fulfilled in the word love. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself will you commit adultery? No, because you love your spouse and you love those people and your love is on that spiritual level even more so than the physical level. And you won't sin against your brother or sister in this matter. I would like to uh, 
bring this to a close by reading you a letter that I received about five years back. And it has, it's been five years, so I feel it's safe enough to share. Uh, there are no names. I have withdrawn the names for obvious reasons. But it's simply a letter that came to me after a Sunday service years ago when we gave a message on this issue of morality. and It's a young girl who was dating a man, and she tells her experience, Dear Skip, I have never asked anyone for this sort of help before. I, I guess I've never done anything so awful that I didn't feel like I could handle it on my own. But this is very deep, and I need your guidance. I never thought I would meet a man that I could share my life with and also my love of God with. I prayed for him to come into my life. I dreamed of how wonderful it could be. And then one day I met him, and it was mutual love at first sight. Ever since that day, I've considered him to be the answer to my prayers, a genuine gift from God. We both agreed that what we had was special, a once-in-a-lifetime deal, that God had a special plan for us. Together we communicate so well. From the beginning, we sat down and discussed our goals, we wanted to follow God's plan. We wanted the perfect relationship. We wanted to spend the rest of our lives together, not just the night. We went to church together, and then we discussed the issues and the impact that it had on our lives. They'd go home and discuss the message. And we prayed for the right directions. We wanted to be married and have that marriage be blessed. Unfortunately, we gave in to our desires in the heat of passion. We know it was wrong. We knew it then, but we justified it by saying that we were truly in love and would one day be married. Listen to this. After all, how could the Lord condemn true love? You know how often I've heard that? Well, it's okay because we really love each other. Really? Well, how about love is patient? In other words, I will wait for you till we make this commitment publicly. If I love you so much, I'm willing to wait for you. But that's the rationale of a lot of people. Can't be wrong. Listen to what she says after that. After all, how could the Lord condemn true love? We were so wrong. By giving in to that, we damaged a beautiful thing. And that wasn't the only time the feelings of guilt lessened each time that we did it. He and I talked about it today, but I don't know if it helped. I still feel so sad. The letter continued with other things, and it took on different avenues. I didn't thought it, would, thought it was inappropriate to finish it, but what I want you to see is that the motivation for these kind of directives is to protect you. God really loves you. He's concerned that he would not just write about uh, what songs you sing to him. But he's concerned about every area of your life because he loves you. If you were walking down a hallway and you saw a sign that says, do not enter, what's the first thing you would think as a normal, natural person? You'd say, why? I want to see what's in there. That's just sort of the natural propensity of people. How come I'm restricted from this? But then you go a little closer and it says, keep out explosives. Oh, okay. I see why now. They don't want me blown up. Exactly. God has this big sign over this area of sex outside of marriage, though in marriage the bed is undefiled. 
He says, keep out. Who are you trying to grab my style? You want to blow up? You want your life ruined? I love you so much that I'm giving you this directive. I know that I am speaking to some who have failed, maybe miserably in this area. And I want to say that, yes, this is sin, and because it is sin, it is forgivable. It's precisely why it's forgivable. It's for these kinds of things that our Savior died on the cross. And he's willing to extend a hand of love and forgiveness and wash that area of your life completely clean. So don't run from it. Confess and forsake it. 